everybody, Mike here, and uh, excited to be with you today. Uh, I am still Andy Liss. I'll explain that in a second, but got a got a couple of big announcements. Um, uh, first of all, the, there's a, a crew of people who have been supporting the podcast uh, and participating in it in a very unique way. Uh, they are Patreon supporters. They financially support the podcast. Um, there's a, a group of over a hundred of them engaged in a Facebook, uh, Facebook group. That's just for them, which is super interesting. Uh, they're very, very engaged and have all sorts of interesting discussions. But one of the things that Patreon does, so it's not patron, but Patreon is, uh, that you, you give different rewards based on different levels of commitment. And so one of the things I've been promising for over a year now is a, um, a unique uh, Revelation podcast. So a podcast going through the book of Revelation um, for some of our Patreon supporters. So we finally, I finally got the first episode out um, this week. And, uh, you know, it's just no, no excuse other than holy cow, it's been crazy. Um, but, but so excited to begin, get, begin this journey. Want to let you know that's out there. If, if the podcast has been something beneficial to you and you want to support us, um, you can go to Patreon, uh, patreon.com and look up, uh, Mike Erie, E-R-R-E, and you can find out, uh, all the details there and sign up if you'd like, and, uh, you can just begin to unlock that conversation. We're going to begin in the book of Revelation. The second issue is where the heck is Andy? Where has Andy been? Lots of comments, tweets. Where the heck is Andy? So, so some of you um, uh, know this, and uh, there's more detail kind of at the on the on the church side if you'd like it. But I, I'm stepping away from leadership from Vox uh, OC, and it, it has been my leaving, my abrupt leaving from the community was really hard um, on the community, and um, and just trying to help lead it from 2,000 miles away has been very, very difficult. I just haven't done a great job in several areas and uh, felt like uh, it was it was time to transition to local leadership. Uh, that's been hard. I mean, that whole decision and conversation has been hard. Um, and uh, and Andy, obviously, is, is a huge central part of uh, Vox OC leadership. So what he, uh, what he wanted to do was just take a hiatus, which is a great word, and um, and to to focus on uh, the extra leadership that's now going to be in that needed in that community, and also and also just to reflect on kind of the journey uh, over the last year that that's been hard, I think, on both of us. Um, uh, trying to pull this off, having been so close and now having been so far away, um, you know, I, I think it's a very healthy and good thing uh, for Andy Bear. So, so that's where Andy is. Um, he says he he uh, he wants to come back, which is awesome. Uh, the podcast is not the same without him, no question about it. Uh, but but I'm gonna keep plugging away, and um, and you know, whenever that season for him. Uh, comes to an end. I mean, I can't wait to make fun of hockey again. So that's where Andy Bear is. He is awesome. Uh, let him know how much you appreciate him. Um, today, I, I and and I've said this. I've said this before. Uh, today we just have mailbag stuff, and and I'm sorry. We'll get to we'll get to some other juicy stuff, but uh, I'm so behind on questions that have been asked that um, I, I just feel obligated to kind of crank through a, a bunch of these every time. 
um, uh, at least at least you know for the next two or three episodes. So I'm sorry about that. But you, but the our folks ask such great stuff. I just feel like we gotta gotta respond in some way or another. Um, so so one question I got um, actually several. So I talked about gun control. And, and obviously that's so divisive and, you know, there's, uh, there, there are always several reactions. A, um, uh, good for you. <laughs> B, uh, stay in your lane, just teach the Bible. And that one always, that always, um, that one I don't understand at all. In a world where we have celebrities give opinions, um, why, why should my discipleship to Jesus cause me to be silent on things? I don't, I don't get that. Um, and, and I certainly don't understand when um, other disciples of Jesus have no problem speaking out <laughs> on some of these things. Uh, I feel I feel that same permission. Um, uh, one person was like, "Hey, well, how come you didn't offer specific policy stuff?" Because I, I don't know. I freaking don't have any idea. But um, but one of the things that that uh, one of the questions that came out was uh, the the head. I don't know if he's the head. He's the executive vice president of the National Rifle Association, the NRA. His name is Wayne LaPierre. And he delivered, uh, I watched the speech. Um, he delivered a speech at CPAC, which I guess is this conservative um, sort of thick tank. And and one of the things, and again, I mean, I, I, think, I think sincere, loving disciples of Jesus can really disagree on the best way to protect our children to protect our security, or protect our communities, and protect our schools. I I I have no doubt about that. Um, but but I always get a little sensitive when um, uh, religion language is used. I, I think inappropriately, and so um, Lapierre um, kind of he he made this statement. Now this isn't a, a quote because he actually had two different sentences. But but I've listened to it, and and this is right. I mean the right to bear arms he says, is not bestowed by man, but granted by God to all Americans as our birthright. So um, now, now again, I'm not, I, 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 if, if you're pro-gun and a member of the NRA, hallelujah, I have no issue with that. Um, I, I just simply want to take a bit of issue with this kind of argument because I'm not sure um, uh, that it's a, uh, quite the biblical one. <laughs> And, 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 and one of the passages that's used to justify this, um, is absolutely and ridiculously taken out of context. So that's when I get interested, um, is, is, yeah, I mean, of course the people are going to disagree over what's the best way, you know, arming teachers and, um, or, or having security people at school or tighter gun laws. I mean, obviously, and I've got opinions on that, but, but the, 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 the more interesting thing is when either the right or the left kind of co-ops Bible talk, um, uh, in, in ways that become inappropriate. Um, and again, I mean, you can say, no, this was totally legit. Okay. That's great. I mean, but I want to have a biblical conversation, not a political conversation. And, uh, because I, I, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where the right to bear arms um, is granted by God to all Americans as our birthright. So if if um, you're going to say that the right to bear arms is code for self-protection, we, we have a right to protect ourselves, we have a right to survive, we, we have a right to not be harmed by others, 
Well, then, then if you're going to say that's what the right to bear arms means, then you also have to say that Iraqis have that freedom. Um, uh, Saudi, Saudi Arabians have that freedom, right? Pakistanis have that freedom. Palestinians have that freedom. Because it sounds like if all that means, if the right to bear arms uh, all, all means, hey, you have a right to protect yourself, and that's part of, of what it is to be uh, that's bestowed by God, um, well, then you have to say that you, you can't just make Americans exceptional in that regard. You have to be consistent and say, well, then simply every person on the planet has that right. And, and maybe they say that. Maybe they're that consistent. But the quote made it very American sounding that, that God has bestowed Americans as our birthright, the right to bear arms. And, and so I just want to say, okay, if you're going to pull God into this conversation, then you either have to say, okay, well, first, this is, this is just, this is a right that is, that is true of every human. And if you say it's a right that's true of every human, then you can't just limit it to Americans. You have to say that everybody has that same right, even when we disagree with them. Or... Uh, if you're going to say, no, no, this this is specific to America, on what basis do you make the claim that God has has specifically chosen America out of all the nations to be its to to be the kind of world police officer? Um, I'd be interested in a biblical justification for that. Or you can say that uh, no, there are actually Bible passages that talk about uh, the right to protect yourself. Um, in, in which case, um, and, and that's kind of where I want to zero in a little bit is, is the argument that, that people give, um, especially, you know, when, when you're asking, okay, so show me in the Bible where the right to bear arms is a God-given right, uh, specifically to Americans. Obviously you can't do that, but what, what you can try to show is that Jesus, um, Jesus taught, uh, self-defense. Jesus taught that it was okay to defend yourself. And, um, and one of the passages that's used to kind of make that argument is found in, uh, in Luke 22, and it's very famous. Um, Jesus is, uh, you know, he's, he's about, it's, it's at the Last Supper, Last Supper's wrapping up, he's about to be arrested. He says, um, Jesus asked them, verse 35, uh, when I sent you before, so this is when he sent the disciples out. He said, when I, when I sent you um, before without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. So, so the idea was the, the initial trip of the apostles uh, two by two into Israel, they were to be dependent entirely upon God and the people for their, uh, for their own provision. They were to take nothing with them. Now, Jesus is about to say that the rules for the road have changed. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Um, and, and so it sounds like, um, and, and even at one point the disciples say, see, Lord, here are two swords. And then Jesus very emphatically says, that's enough. Um, so, the, so the question is on the face of it, boy, that, that, that sounds like, okay, the, the journey is going to be rough. And this time you cannot count on the hospitality uh, of people. Now you actually have to arm yourself and, and um, provide for yourself and provision yourself. And, uh, you know, it sounds like that, that Jesus here is giving permission. And, and the argument is, well, uh, clearly, Jesus, why else would you take a sword other than self-defense? 
Um, and and so that so the argument is um, that that Jesus here is giving permission. He's acknowledging it, or he's encouraging them to buy swords. Um, for for what it is that was about to come, the great persecution that was to come, the fact that that Jerusalem was no longer going to be a safe place after the execution of Jesus. Now, there, and there are absolutely more sophisticated ways of making this argument. I just want to point there. This is a very popular um, argument to make in justification of the claim that the right to bear arms is a God-given American right. And um, and so so just a couple of thoughts. First of all. Is that possible that Jesus is saying that? Yes, but you do have to ask several questions. Uh, first of all, why is it that Jesus rebukes Peter when using the sword? Um, and, and he says, you know, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. And, and maybe the answer is, well, Peter initiated that uh, that conflict. So it wasn't in purely self-defense. Okay. Um, why is it that Jesus so clearly articulates an anti-revenge ethic? That that returns good for evil. In, in fact, the the um, his clearest teaching on this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven, is is you know it's turning the other cheek. It's carrying uh, a load for uh, more than you have to. And we've talked about it on the podcast that those were really culturally interesting ways of shaming the other person without resorting to retaliation. I I don't know of a single freaking place where Jesus encouraged people to retaliate for evil done to them. Now, he doesn't encourage them to be pushovers. And, and his teaching is incredibly creative in terms of bringing shame and awareness upon the person doing the oppressing. Absolutely. But I never, ever, ever see Jesus advocating violence. Now, now people can disagree with this. And if you disagree, great. But go read. Preston Sprinkle wrote a book called Fight. He's been somebody that's been on the podcast and it's a Christian case for nonviolence, and I just think it's overwhelming, biblically. Um, and uh, and and again, now does that leave room for self defense? Well, okay, that great conversations. Um, but let's engage. His book has to be at least dealt with and acknowledged. Um, but I but I, but back to Luke twenty two. When I look at that passage. Um, yeah, you can, you can say, yeah, he said to bring a sword and there you go. But, but I actually think Jesus himself interprets this passage. I don't, I don't think it's true that what Jesus here is doing is advocating self-defense in the way, um, that, uh, that some folks think, because what Jesus does, he says, when I sent you without a purse, bag or sandals, you lack anything, nothing. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Um, and, and that, and people have understood this, um, to be, uh, metaphor, uh, metaphorical. This, what Jesus is saying is persecution is coming, prepare yourselves. So the sword here isn't literal, although they take it literally. And that's why Jesus says, okay, that's enough. Um, but so that's one option, but the better option for me is that Jesus actually explains the right after he says, sell your sword or sell your cloak and buy a sword. Um, because then he quotes immediately on verse 37, he says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That is a quote from Isaiah 53. And then he says, and I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples say, see, Lord, here are two swords. And he says, that's enough. Now, if that verse wasn't in there, 
that that insert uh, that insertion from Isaiah 53, then I, I think you'd have to say, well, yeah, Jesus is encouraging them to buy to go right now and buy swords. Um, but when Jesus says it is written and then quotes uh, from Isaiah 53, and you go back to Isaiah 53, and in Isaiah 53, if you've never read it, um, is is a one of the most incredibly important New Test or Old Testament passages about the Messiah. Um, that in some cases is written, uh, it's written about someone called the servant of the Lord. And sometimes in Isaiah 40 through 66, the servant of the Lord is a collective. And so it's Israel. Sometimes it's seen as a singular person, but the early Christians read Isaiah 53 and just saw Jesus all over this. You know, it's things like, surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. We consider him punished by God, stricken by him, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace Peace was on him by his wounds. We are healed. Um, I mean, so, so people saw this, the earliest Christians saw Isaiah 53 as like a straight line to Jesus of Nazareth. But the part that Jesus quotes comes from a section. Um, Therefore, I will, verse 12, I will give him a portion. I will give the servant of the Lord a portion among the great because the servant will die for the sins of many. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus here quotes the, he was numbered for the transgressors. Now, what that means is he was counted among them. He was counted as one of them. And so the much more, in my view, probable interpretation of this passage, because Jesus instantly, he says that command, and then he, and then he talks about it fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, that, that Jesus had to be counted. So the Jewish authorities had every right to put Jesus on trial for Jesus's claims to be Messiah, for, for, uh, for stirring up the people against the religious leadership. But the Jewish leaders could not arrest Jesus and put him to death. Rome was the, Rome was the only um, government who could do that. And for Rome to be interested, you, you had to be seditious, that you had to be some sort of revolutionary. It, Rome just did not simply... Rome wasn't interested in in, in um, a- advocating and adjudicating between um, political or, or excuse me ad- adjudicating between religious disputes among the Jews. I mean, they had no interest in this at all. In fact, you see that as Jesus goes through these different trials, they're like, "Dude, this is a freaking Jewish thing. You guys figure it out." But it's when the Jews, at least the leadership, claim that Jesus was actually advocating um, a revolt against Caesar that the Romans get interested. So the thought here by many commentators I respect is that what Jesus has said is that the only way he knows he's about to be arrested, the only way he will be arrested if he is thought to be advocating armed revolt. And um, and so being numbered among the transgressors in this instance means that Jesus was seen with a group of people, people who carried arms and therefore gave Rome the, uh, the reason necessary to uh, arrest Jesus, not just because Jesus was troubling the temple authorities, but now the charge could be made. He was advocating armed revolt. Now, again, if you don't buy this explanation, okay, that's, that's fine. But you still have to make sense of why does Jesus quote from Isaiah 53 right after that? Why does Jesus say that's enough? 
to them when when it sounds like right before he said hey each and every one of you go get a sword sell your cloak and get a sword and then the disciples say hey we got two right here and jesus says that's enough so so you have to explain that and then you have to explain why jesus is so so rebukes peter for using the sword and then lastly how do you square this with the rest of jesus's teaching that is so clearly advocating creative nonviolence in response to oppression so, so for me to, to see someone say, and to, to make this case, uh, the right to bear arms is not bestowed by man, but granted by God to all Americans as a birthright. I just think that is the fusion of, of nationalism and a conservative form of Jesus following. I just don't, I, I don't see how you make that case unless you want to make that case for everybody, in, in which case, good, you're at least consistent. But then you have to say, okay, so from the scriptures, and, and everyone invariably is going to go to the Old Testament. Well, yeah, but what about, what about, what about all the passages uh, in the Old Testament where God seems to advocate revenge and God calls the people to go to war? And those are very fair very fair questions that uh, that are worthy of conversation, um, but suffice it to, the the very easiest answer, of course, is that we're not a theocracy led by Yahweh Himself. Rather, uh, what Jesus has done has been to set aside some of the old teaching, like and, and Jesus Himself said this. You've heard it said, "Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth." Right? Repay evil for evil. And in the Old Testament context, that was actually a command that really restricted. Uh, retribution, uh, that you limit your retribution to what it was that was taken from you. Uh, but Jesus simply says, but I tell you, and then, and then talks about loving enemies and then provides the model for loving them as he was beaten and he was struck and he was mocked. And so do you want to say that following a crucified Messiah, a Messiah who would rather lay down his life for his enemies than kill them, would you want to say that it is that Messiah that now invites his people to have a right to bear arms, um, and 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 we call that a God-given right? Are, are are we sure we sure we're standing on firm ground there? Uh, if if you want to go into Old Testament Israel, great, we can have that conversation all day. It's a phenomenal conversation to have, but. Uh, we are not Old Testament Israel. I mean, not even remotely. And and the idea that you can just take like like the Old Testament just and and lop off stuff that was happening there and bring it forward into 21st century America without acknowledging what it was that Jesus did and how he fulfilled and reframed and reflected the Old Testament law, man, you just can't do that. Not 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 if if you're going to claim God's on your side. So do I think? Uh, human beings have rights to be left alone. Of course I do. Do you? Do I think um, human beings have rights uh, to self-defense? Well, sure. Um, but to say that those are God-given uh, to all Americans as our birthright? I don't know, man. That seems that seems like it's too far. If somebody wants to say that because our constitution has said there is a right to bear arms, that we should not infringe upon that right, great. But to me, when you when you start making a religious argument, um, I guess that's where I, I begin to have you know questions about it. And so, um, you know, just a couple of thoughts there, a couple of questions, and, and and there's so much more to say. I mean, I, I even hate talking about this again because I know, you know, the amount of um, division and <laughs> and and insult I will get, and it's like really. Um, and I'm not, and somebody accused me of bashing Republicans, 
man, I, I just, I want you to understand I I've been one, um, it, until this latest go around. And so I have no interest in bashing Republicans. I just have a, a, a high, high interest in, uh, anointing the Republican platform as God's platform and anointing a Republican candidate as the, the evangelicals like, like dream candidate. I mean, I just, I, I just think if your convictions of Jesus following lead you to vote, uh, Republican, great. But there are other people whose convictions about Jesus following lead them to vote Democrat. And so, so, you know, it's very easy to demonize. It's very easily easy to like not be civil. Um, but when you start, I mean, the idolatry thing here is so, so intertwined with, with, um, our worship and followership of Jesus that so many people just think to follow Jesus means you are conservative Republican. And that I, I, there is no doubt in my mind that Jesus would turn over those tables Absolutely. Even if you are a conservative Republican, to say that Jesus would embody your vision of the way the kingdoms of the world work, I just don't think you have a leg to stand on. You can say you can say the abortion card, great. And, and uh, our brothers and sisters on the left would say, well, what about the poor? And what about the immigrants? Uh, if you're going to be pro-life, why not be pro-life the whole way? Um, so, so I just think they're great, a, a great deal of conversation to be had. Um, I just, I am very sensitive to when scripture, um, it can appear to be hijacked, uh, to promote certain agendas. And, and, you know, if you're going to say, um, uh, well then good, let's deal with all the agendas where scripture is, um, uh, hijacked. Great. Let's, let's start a list. Um, couple of questions before we go. Um, why is it, hi guys. Why is it that Moses didn't seem all that outraged by divorce amongst the Jews, but Jesus condemns it completely and harshly? Um, is it the same message? Why do both of their visions, what do both of their visions mean for the kingdom on earth today? What a phenomenal, phenomenal question. Um, so Moses in Deuteronomy uh, provides, he actually, he actually makes provision for um, women primarily to be given a certificate of divorce. And the, the command originally had to do with servants in a, a master's household. Um, he, you know, a, a servant who marries one and then marries another has to still take care of the one or give her a certificate of divorce showing that she was not dishonorable or she should not be shamed um, as she reengages. And, 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 and there's so much cultural stuff going on in that. I mean, obviously back like thousands of years ago, women were among the most vulnerable of society and a, and a woman who'd been previously married um, was, and, and was no longer married, was thought to be immoral, um, was thought to be scandalous. Um, typically they received no support from the community. And so uh, believe it or not, the, the command to do a certificate of divorce was actually incredibly progressive for its time. Now, Jesus gets brought into this divorce conversation a couple thousand years later, or however long it was. Um, and uh, and the, the, we did a whole podcast on this in, in Matthew 19. So if you go back into the archives, we did a whole show on uh, the divorce regulation. And, and that Jesus was being asked to weigh in on a very specific Jewish debate of that time. So... So my first answer to you 
Mr. Questioner, is um, I think Moses was harsh. Certainly God was harsh about it. I mean, he even, he himself says, I hate divorce. Um, and it clearly was not his intention. Um, and, I, and I think Moses was harsh on the abuse of and, and hence the need for some sort of requirement um, to, to create a just and fair society. Uh, but I think Jesus was being asked to take a side in a very specific Jewish debate of his day. For more info on that, see the previous podcast. And so that's where your question about how, what do both of their visions mean for the kingdom on earth today? I think that previous podcast would really help um, answer that question. And so rather than take up a lot of time rehashing that material, I just want to refer you to them to say yes. Um, and, and Jesus even comments on Moses saying, hey, Moses, um, this was due to your hardness of hearts. This was a concession. This was not what God intended ever. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. One of the reasons why I actually really trust that the Bible is true is that you see these sorts of progressions as humanity goes, that there was a, there was a sense in which um, for its time, that, that, that command was absolutely and insanely progressive and necessary. And then, and then by the time you get to Jesus, it had, it had been used and abused to, to now, as long as you gave somebody a certificate of divorce, one Jewish sect said that, well, you could divorce her as long, you know, if she just burned your meal. I mean, for any and every reason you could divorce her. And so Jesus, of course, calls everybody back to the creator's original intent of Genesis 1 and 2, and answers that very specifically. But um, but I, I do think there, there are biblical grounds for divorce, absolutely. I do think there are times when it is the lesser of evils, but I think those times are much rarer than the rate in which uh, American evangelicals divorce. And so... Um, you know, I, I think, I think when you're in that situation and it's not abusive and it's not, you know, domestic abuse or infidelity or, um, abandonment, then, you know, I think it's, it can be very, very easy to look at Jesus's, um, to Jesus's words and either interpret them to mean that you're in sin for even wanting to be you know, separate from this person or that, no, you can do whatever you want just because you have irreconcilable differences. And I don't think either one of those is true. All right. Last question. Um, let's see here. Oh, this is from one of my friends named Ray. Ray was in my college group back in the day. Uh, hey, Mike, still married to my insanely hot Buckeye wife. Well, that, that's redundant. You can just, all you have to say is Buckeye wife and we got it. Um, and proud father of a two and a half year old boy that looks astonishing like you. Well, well, Ray, I've been meaning to have a talk. <laughs> no, so, so I hope he thins out and grows his hair in. I've been praying for the better part of the last six months about how working, or excuse me, about working as a professional in creative avenues, such as marketing, advertising, graphic design, praying about how being a Jesus follower that has infiltrated secular marketing doesn't seem to fully reconcile our calling on a guy level. Now, I don't know what that means. So I really want your, I would love more clarification on that. I just came across Good Faith, which is a, a book um, and, and a chapter about what to do as Christians. It dawned on me that I've been missing the forest for the trees. Are we not called to create beauty, to create culture for the coming kingdom rather than settle for a lesser version that simply stops at being Han Solo clones for Christ? 
<laughs> I devour a lot of subject matter, and yet very few Jesus followers with a platform seem to devote much time in leading creatives that are shaping our human culture with a heart and perspective that is intent on ushering in God's kingdom. Would you consider covering some of that if and when the time is right? How can we spot live creatives with that heart? Um, that First of all, that's an amazing question. So a couple of thoughts. Number one, uh, there's a book by Andy, a guy named Andy Crouch, and it is called Culture Making. And that is a book, Ray, because you're a big reader, that is a book you must devour. Um, I, there is some really good stuff I think you'll enjoy on that. Secondly, you need to read, if you haven't already, and I'm, you probably have the book Simply Christian by uh, N.T. Wright. He has a chapter on beauty in there that I think is very, very powerful. Um, thirdly, I'm interested, I know, I know we have loads of creatives, obviously because of Andy, Andy is a massive creative, but, but we have loads of creatives, um, who are always chiming in on the podcast. It would be interesting, it would be interesting to kind of, Ray, if you would like clarify your question a little bit, it'd be interesting to get some of them on the podcast, um, to give thoughts on this, um, I know we've got tons of musicians and um, we've got some writers and we've got a couple poets. Um, and my son, Nate, raps, so he considers himself a creative. <laughs> uh, but, but just off the top of my head, just a couple of thoughts. Number one, central to being made in the image of God is culture making. So when it says that um, uh man and woman were created in God's image, then immediately God gives them work to do. Bless, he blesses them, commands them to be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it, rule. And as we talked before, those are, those are words that are really interesting Hebrew words from what I understand. Those are words that had to do with kind of worship and, and, and even the words in chapter two, more clearly worship words. But the idea is that they were to be God's stewards over the created order on God's behalf and reflecting God's benevolent leadership and love and care for creation to creation and reflecting the creation's worship of the one true God back to God. And so we were kind of these intermediaries, if you will, these co-regents. And our job was to create culture. That's why in the early chapters of Genesis, it's all about, well, here's this guy who started to make metal. And here's this person that started poetry. And here's this person, because that was what we were fundamentally created to do. Now, of course, it's warped and it's bent. And technology and culture gets used like in the Tower of Babel, Genesis, uh, whatever, Genesis 11, I think that is. Um uh, where where now we've invented bricks, but now we use that technology to kind of overreach, and and so there's all of that. But but clearly the impulse to create culture is massive. The second thing I would say is um, pr I'm praying about how to be a Jesus follower that has infiltrated secular marketing. Uh, that I would I would really encourage you to reword that and to rethink that. I don't think there's. I've really come to believe this whole sacred secular thing is false. And that if you are filled with the spirit of God, um, that whatever you are doing is sacred. It doesn't matter if you are shoveling snow, in, in my case, uh, or if you are leading marketing campaigns. And, um, and, and so whatever it is that you're doing, um, obviously, Paul says, do it as you would unto the Lord. No question about it. But there's a deeper sense in which that um, the, the use of your creative gifts is itself a way to bless, honor, and worship God, regardless uh, of whether or not those 
the, those creations are used in an explicitly religious context or not. And so I would take the secular thing and say, okay, um, I've been praying about working as a professional in creative avenues. How do you do that as a Jesus follower? Um, that's fantastic. That's That to me is a much more interesting question. If we drop the secular part of it, and I know you're probably sitting there going, yeah, yeah, yeah I didn't mean that. I get it. But I think it, I think a lot of people do mean it. That a lot of people think, because I even heard it last night. Um, we have a little Bible study and it's like people keep talking about full-time ministry. And, and, and when I press, well, what does full-time ministry mean? They mean working for a Christian organization or church. And that's just not true biblically, right? I mean, Paul is so unbelievably clear that if you are a Jesus follower, you are in full-time ministry, regardless of what it is you do. You, you are a full-time ambassador of reconciliation, regardless of whether or not you are baking cookies, you are teaching school, you are uh, mowing lawns. I mean, that is absolutely relevant. So, so I think that would be a very interesting uh, episode to talk about um, a theology of creativity. And so I'd love some more of your feedback. And if you're creative and you think you've got something to say on that, would you would you email us at the podcast? It's hello at uh, voxpodcast.com. Hello at voxpodcast.com. Um, so a couple of thoughts. Well, we, um, we want to wrap up today um, by being grateful my, my son isn't home. <laughs> And and I have some peace and quiet to do this. But um, even more than that, I just want to say I'm super grateful for you and super grateful for your support and your encouragement as we read so many of these comments. I mean, again, I'm so sorry. I've been so slacking on this. Um, as we read these comments, it's unbelievable how much you trust us with and um, how encouraging you are and how challenging you are. And I really do hope it's helpful. I mean, deeply we want this to be helpful for folks uh, in the journey. So uh, to that end, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace. Thank you, my friends. Till next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast and now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Vox Podcast.